0: Morning again, please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 9. We believe that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and able to change our lives from the inside out. And so we give the Word of God a lot of attention in our worship services, in our discipleship meetings, in our counseling sessions. In every part of our ministry life, we focus on the Word of God because that is what changes our lives. So, we will be reading this morning from Luke Chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, a passage that uh, your Bible may call for you the transfiguration. And we'll talk about what that means, what a transfiguring is, and why this matters and what it has to do with our lives as well. Let me read Luke chapter 9, verse 28 down through verse 36. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. In our passage last week, we saw that Jesus' disciples were going to have a hard road ahead. And the way that the passage uh, made that clear was when Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There are hard days for those who follow Jesus. Perhaps you've had hard days or hard months or a hard life, and uh, you're looking forward to when you have something bright at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. This past summer, our family drove from here, uh, literally, There, next door, to uh, Yellowstone in Wyoming. And we took four days to get there and three days to get back. We were taking our time. We were stopping at other state parks along the way. We stayed at a hotel one night and camped a few nights and then set up camp in Yellowstone. And it was a very hard drive getting there. Uh, We hopped on I-90 and just took it west. And uh, it was beautiful to see the various changes in the landscape But along the way, we dealt with, you know, very hot temperatures. It was the middle of July, so every time we got out of the car, it felt like our shoes were burning underneath us on the asphalt. And, of course, you're dealing with crying children and crying spouses in some cases, and you're dealing with, um, you know, just all the things that come with a hard trip. Uh, One of our children got sick the day we left home, and we had to get them tested in South Dakota for COVID. Thankfully, it came back negative because that would have changed our lives too. But... uh, Still, you're dealing with sick children then, and all of us passed around this nasty cold while we're traveling around, and all of this so that we can get to a place we've never gone to, and we assumed was good. We've seen videos about it, we've read books about it, we've uh, looked through you know picture books about it, so we know there's something glorious at the end, but it's really hard to get there on the way. And then we finally get there. I think it was the Thursday evening after we left on Monday. We got there right about sunset. It was beautiful. Uh, seeing the, the rushing water along the side of the road at one point and the, we were playing the Rudy soundtrack because it's just a glorious soundtrack and we're playing that in the car and, and finally we, you know, we're seeing the sunset behind these mountains, the rushing water next to us and Andrew goes, I love you, Lellowstone which is his way of saying it. I love you, Yellowstone." I mean this was like his first impression of seeing the, the glory, the beauty of this place we've been talking about for at that point seven or eight months we've been talking about that trip. And that glory or that vision of beauty is what Jesus wanted his followers to have for along the way, for that time when you're going to be taking up your cross and denying yourself and following him. If you're going to go that hard way, you need to have a sense of what is waiting for you on the other side, of what the glory is that is uh, laid out before you. And so in this passage, which is in many ways a continuation of last week's passage about the hard road it is to follow Jesus, we see once again that those who follow Jesus must have a right understanding of who he is. You're just not going to stick to it if you feel like there's some better alternative And so when Jesus said that you're going to take up your cross, which again would have hit home for these guys. They had seen people take up their crosses. It meant they were on the road to die just minutes later. You need to take up your cross. You need to deny yourself to follow Jesus. You need to possibly lose your life now so you can have your life later. What Jesus does there is says, and by the way, on the other side is glory. And so what he does in in verse 20 six which we read last week which we studied last week the son of man will come in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels and then he had this kind of cryptic statement that theologians have wrestled with what did he possibly mean when he said this and this was verse 27 and all of this is by way of getting us back into verses 28 through 36 verse 27 there are some of you so not all of you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What could that possibly mean? And again, theologians have come up with probably, I think, seven options that theologians have kind of boiled this down to over thousands of years since Jesus said this. And I think the answer of what that means is in verses 28 through 36. I don't think we need to make this more complicated than it is. So we read, uh, to understand a passage, we read the the near context and the far context and so by the near context, we mean the passage that comes before it and the passage that comes after it. By the far context, you mean, you know, the whole book. So in this case of Luke, or perhaps sometimes it's it, often it's best to kind of try and zoom out big time and say, what is this passage saying in the context of the whole Bible? And so that helps us as well in this in this passage. But in the near context, what you're seeing is Jesus prophesying difficulty, like that road to Yellowstone and glory, like actually getting to Yellowstone and what that glory is, is seeing the kingdom of God. And here in verses 28 through 36, we see what he means by that. It's specifically, it is this cloud that descends on this mountain while Jesus' disciples are sleeping, while Jesus is praying. This pattern repeats itself repeatedly in the life of Jesus and even in the book of Luke. But here, while this happens, this cloud descends, a voice speaks, and they see Christ in his glory. And Why do you think This needed to happen so that they would have what it takes to persevere through the end. Much the way that athletes think of the the joy they would have if they were to win that trophy. Or uh, politicians think of the joy they would have if they win that election. Or you think of the joy you're going to have while you're in labor of holding your baby at the end of it. So you're persevering through the difficulty so that you can have the glory at the end, the joy at the end. And Jesus is saying, it's going to be a hard road. You don't even understand what I mean by that when I tell you that. But there's glory at the end, and I want to give you a glimpse, a relatively brief glimpse of what it looks like to see the glory of Christ. So this is what we have here in verses 28 through 36. So those who follow Jesus, as we saw last week, need a right understanding, need clarity about who Jesus is. Remember, the big idea last week was... Those who follow Jesus need clarity and conviction. The conviction to go all the way following Jesus. The clarity of who specifically he is and what his mission is. And this whole passage, why did the transfiguration happen? And again, I'll define what a transfiguration is. Why did this happen? It happened. Jesus' outward appearance changed. That's what a transfiguration is. Jesus' outward appearance changed so that his followers would have a greater understanding of who Jesus is and of what his mission was. So it was a greater understanding of his identity and of his mission. That's what this whole event is about. An unusual event for sure, in that it only happened one time in human history. It's never happened since. It didn't happen before this in Jesus' life. And I think it was specifically for the benefit of the disciples. They get to see the glory that Jesus just talked about in verse 25. So uh, just about a week after Jesus said these things of how hard it's going to be to follow Jesus, let me show you a glimpse of how glorious it is to follow Jesus so that you'll know who Jesus is and you'll know why he came. That's what this passage is about. A transfiguration is simply a drastic change. So some people could say you transfigured your house by getting all new paint and all new furniture and all new carpet. and basically it looks like a brand new house on the inside. It's been transfigured. And here Jesus' outward appearance was drastically changed He went from looking like a normal human being, which he was. He was fully God and fully man. So his disciples had up to this point only seen him as fully man. They had, you know, believed what he had said about him being the Messiah, the Christ of God, as we saw in verse uh, 20 that we looked at last week. They've acknowledged that we believe he is the Christ. And now Jesus is giving them a greater glimpse of of what that means and of, of how glorious he truly is as being fully God as well. So, if you're going to follow Jesus, what specifically do you need to know about him? And he gives you three truths in this passage. Luke lays out three truths for us of what you need to know about Jesus if you're going to follow him. The first is in verses 28 and 29, quite simply, that he is glorious. That he's utterly different than us. So when we think about the glory of God, we're thinking about his holiness. We're thinking about his majesty. We're thinking of him being bright the word glory means that he is weighty. And so um, C.S. Lewis wrote, a, wrote an article called The Weight of Glory, just how significant God is. That's what we're talking about when we think about Christ being glorious. And this is specifically in verses 28 and 29. Jesus, about a week after he said, uh, all he did, and I'm saying about a week because uh, the disciples uh, give various ways of counting how many days it was, After Jesus said these things about taking up his their crosses and following Jesus, but about a week later, uh, Jesus takes these disciples up on a mountain, and he doesn't. Luke doesn't tell us which mountain, which means we shouldn't really have to care that much about it. But a place where they were able to go to pray, and while Jesus was praying, again this happens in other passages, these brothers fall asleep. Peter, James, and John. Why these three guys? He had mentioned them back in chapter 8. Remember when Jesus went into a house to heal someone? And he didn't allow anybody else in the house except for Peter and James and John. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus has lots of followers. And then he has inside of those followers 12 disciples who he gives particular authority to and a very specific mission to. And inside of those 12, he has these three guys, Peter and James and John. And in the Gospel of John, we even see that Jesus is very close, especially to John. So there's these levels of relationship, of friendship with these, with these men. And he gives them various responsibilities and privileges and so forth as part of that. But these three men are often with Jesus. And here they are, and it seems to be at nighttime. And it seems to be that they're obviously exhausted. And so in verse 29, Jesus is praying, and the appearance of his face was altered. We could say he, he was transfigured. That's what that means. His appearance changed, and his clothing became dazzling white. We, we read elsewhere in the book of Luke of, of uh, the, the angels who come to the tomb in Luke 24, and they are in dazzling white apparel as well. So there's this heavenly aura about them, as there is here about Jesus in verse 29. But you also, as you read that, you perhaps if you've read through the book of Exodus, per, perhaps you had um, flashbacks to something else you've read in the Bible of when Moses encountered God in a cloud on a mountain, and when he came down, he didn't know it, but the way he looked was different. you remember this passage, and I believe it's in exodus thirty four and so much so that that uh, his you know friends, I believe his brother Aaron and others, put a veil over him because he was so bright and so uh, light after being in the presence of God on that mountain. And so here the same thing is happening to Jesus, and that's just one of multiple uh, parallels we could say, or echoes of the experience that Moses had on Mount Sinai after receiving the 10 commandments from God and and speaking with God repeatedly in the tabernacle. And so the appearance of Jesus' face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. All this is saying in verses 28 and 29 is that Jesus is glorious. They are seeing some sense of this glory that's talked about in verse 25 that says that he will come, uh, verse 26, he will come in his glory, the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels. They're getting a taste of heaven, I guess we could say, in, here in this, uh, in this transfiguration moment. When they're seeing Jesus' altered. It's giving them a a taste of the glory that they will experience forever with Christ. So 28 and 29 tells us he's glorious. We need to know this as as Christ's followers. This compels us to hate our sin. This compels us to love other people. This compels us to go through suffering in a way that honors the Lord. This reminds us that Jesus is not just some other you know, folk hero, someone that people like, someone that people honor and respect. We talked last week about the way that various people view Jesus both now and throughout human history. Well, he's a great prophet. Well, he was a great teacher. Well, he was a great example. All of those things are true. None of those things is sufficient in and of themselves. None of those descriptions are sufficient. And so we need to know that he is glorious And here he is in the presence of God revealing some of his future glory that that is his now in heaven and will be his forever. In verses 30 through 31, he is the appointed Savior. Where do you see that in verses 30 and 31? You might be looking at it and say, I don't see anything about salvation in verses 30 and 31. Well, let me read this passage again. Verse 30, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. So they likewise are Evidently radiant here. And spoke of his departure. Let's think about that for a second. And this phrase which says, which he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. the word accomplish could also be fulfill. So there's a sense in which Jesus has come to fulfill a particular mission. And he's going to do it in Jerusalem. So from here on, and really especially in verse 51 on, Jerusalem takes center stage in this book of Luke. So this point is only been mentioned a couple of times like when Jesus was in the temple as a child in Jerusalem but from about this point on and especially later on in uh, chapter 9 verse 51 all the way to the end of the book Jerusalem is really where this book revolves around and then Acts also written by Luke starts in Jerusalem and goes outward from there but uh, Jerusalem takes center stage here but particularly in verse 31 what's Uh, Important for us to note here is when it says that Jesus spoke of his departure. And I'm curious because I didn't check this in the NIV. Does anybody have the new international version uh, that you're holding right now? Nobody? Okay, that's fine. I was curious what it said there uh, in verse uh, 31. But who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure? This word departure here, you have it? What does it say? Great. That's so insightful. Uh, Thank you. Uh, So it says the same thing. Uh, the Greek word behind the word departure there is the word exodus. So maybe that sounds a little more familiar to us. And that, that Greek word only shows up a couple times in the New Testament, one of those times specifically referring to the exodus in the book of Hebrews uh, chapter 11. So what does that have to do with anything? Well, the Old Testament prophets repeatedly, continually give expectation that the Messiah, the one who would come at a certain time to save his people, would accomplish a new exodus. And so let's back up and ask, well, what's an old exodus? Because perhaps it's been a while since you've read through the book of Exodus. Uh, Perhaps, you know, Clayton led through a, a Bible study in Exodus for two years. So for some of you guys, this is super familiar. And for some of us, maybe it's been years since you've read through Exodus, if you've read it at all. So the exodus is this super significant moment in the Old Testament, really the defining moment of salvation of God's people in the Old Testament, where God delivers his people out of the realm of darkness, Egypt in that case, and takes them into the new land, into salvation, into deliverance. And so what the Old Testament then lays out repeatedly is that there was expectation of a new exodus, of a better exodus, or we could even say of a true exodus, of going from darkness into light. Not just from Egypt into the promised land eventually, but from death into life. From bondage to sin instead of bondage to slavery in Egypt into bond, into glorious freedom in Christ. And so there's this super- um, consistent thread throughout the Bible, from the book of Exodus on, of God providing a new Exodus, a better Exodus, and he does it specifically through Christ. And theologians are basically united in saying that, that this uh, phrase in verse 31 is specifically talking about this new Exodus that Jesus accomplishes in his departure, in his Exodus. When he died, it was his way of bringing people out of darkness into light. And he accomplished it. He fulfilled that mission specifically at Jerusalem. What this means is, if Moses and Elijah and Jesus are talking about Jesus' death, his departure, his exodus, before it even happened, one of the very clear implications of that is Jesus' death on the cross was no accident. He was not some victim of the evils of the Jewish people or even of the Roman people who put him to death, who hammered him to that cross, he willingly laid down his life to be the sacrificial lamb, going back to the book of Exodus, for his people. To be the one true final sacrifice for God's people. To bring salvation and deliverance to God's people. He is the anointed and the appointed Savior in verses 30 and 31. And why are the two people with him Moses and Elijah? And I also had the question, like, how did the disciples know it was Moses and Elijah? We have no idea. They weren't wearing name tags, I'm sure. But, you know, in my mind, just based on my childhood flannel graph, they both looked exactly the same. But, you know, like long beards and long robes, and you can probably just swap them in and out to any story. And he's also Noah. You know, this flannel graph character is also Noah when you need him to be, or Abraham. Well, here, there's two very distinct characters. We don't know how the disciples knew who they were, but again, Luke doesn't care about that detail. They knew who they were. And, but, but I think, you know, why should we, why would we want, why were it be, I can't even say a sentence, goodness, give me a second. Why were the two people there, Moses and Elijah? Why weren't, for instance, Isaiah and Jeremiah there instead? Or any number of other Old Testament heroes, we could say. And again, I would say theologians kind of give you a lot of options on this question. One is uh, one perspective that people give is, well, maybe it's because uh, Moses wrote the law, and then you also have a, a significant part of the Old Testament is the prophets. Well, yes, but Elijah didn't really write a lot of the prophets, like really wasn't a writing prophet at all. He uh, was obviously very influential and a significant Old Testament character. I think probably a closer parallel is that both Moses and Elijah had a situation similar to this one in their lives. They both experienced theophanies, or that's a theological term for experiences with God on a mountain. And here they're involved in another one of those, but this time with Jesus. And so these two significant Old Testament figures are with Jesus, in a sense, validating Jesus's ministry and saying, as we'll get to in the next few verses, Jesus is not just not Moses and not Elijah. Because remember, people had asked in previous passages leading up to this, well, maybe, maybe this guy that we're seeing is, is Elijah, come back to life. Essentially, by them being here, they're saying, not only is Jesus not Elijah, he's so much bigger and better than Moses and Elijah. So much more influential, so much more important in God's program. And so then we get to verses 32 and 36. We see Jesus as glorious. We see Jesus as the appointed Savior. And in verses 32 through 36, we see Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament expectations, of all the Old Testament expectations. And there's three specifically that we'll get to as we work our way through these next few verses. So really the narrative continues in verse 32. Peter, James, and John are very sleepy. Then they wake up and they see Jesus having this conversation. I'm sure they were stunned. I'm sure they rubbed their eyes and thought, like, are you seeing the same thing that I'm seeing here? This uh, has never happened in our lives before. And then you see uh, in verse 33 that Elijah and Moses are parting from Jesus. Perhaps that means they see these men ascending back up to heaven. Who knows exactly what that means? But Peter says to Jesus, it's good we're here. We should make three tents. We should have a tent for Jesus a tent for Moses, a tent for Elijah. And what's he trying to do? Why, why would he want tents there? He wants these guys to stay there. He wants this glorious moment to continue in the here and in the now. Like, this is so cool, let's just let it continue longer. But all good things must come to an end. They hadn't really figured that out yet with this situation. And so he says, you know, let's make these three tents. And then he, Luke tells us, He wasn't aware of what he was saying. He didn't know what he said. In other words, looking back on this, Peter probably thought, I really stuck my foot in my mouth there, as he did multiple other times in his life, Uh, sometimes even more gloriously, we could say, than than this time. But uh, he wasn't even aware of what was happening, and so he wasn't aware of what to do with it. He wasn't sure what he should do, and so he didn't even know what he was saying. The real problem is, by creating three equal tents, it seems like Jesus, Elijah, and Moses are equals. And that's exactly what this next, passage, this next part is intended to debunk for us. These are not equals. This isn't like you know, the three guys in the starting lineup. They're not even close. And that's what verse 34 and 35 is intended to communicate to us. As Peter was saying these things, hey, let's build these three tents. A cloud came and overshadowed them. This happens in Exodus. This happens in Isaiah. This happens in Daniel. This happens in 1 Kings. We could keep going. Clouds representing the, the presence of God is a, uh, a regular occurrence throughout the Old Testament. And a voice came out of the cloud after it's overshadowed them. In verse 35, saying, this is my son. So clearly God the Father is speaking here. And he says three Very important phrases. This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. All three of those are God the Father quoting Old Testament passages. So I want to walk you through all three of those. First one, this is my son. That is an echo, that is a quote of Psalm 2, verse 7. So let me go back there, which in that context is specifically referring to David being enthroned on the, on, uh, in Jerusalem, which is called Zion, my holy hill, in verse 6 of Psalm 2. But then it says, uh, David writes, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. And now here, today I have begotten you. Again, talking about David being established as the king in Jerusalem, but the New Testament takes that repeatedly, forcefully, and points it forward to Jesus as a messianic uh, declaration about jesus the same statement was used at jesus's baptism in luke chapter 3 you can go back and look at that in about, about chapter 3 verse 21 i believe so this is my son that's referring to daniel uh, i'm sorry uh psalm 2 and so what this is telling us is that jesus is the royal king he's fulfilling the expectations of being the royal king on god's throne and so what's our response to that What should you do when you have a king? You should bow to him. Worship him. He's the royal king, so bow to him. He fulfills the expectations of the Old Testament king. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. This is why in the New Testament we read dozens of times, even here in Luke, about the kingdom of God, which Jesus established. A king establishes a kingdom. Jesus establishes God's kingdom because he is that king. So he is the royal king. Bow to him. Then this next line says, he is my chosen one. Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 42. Verse 1, behold my servant. This is God the Father speaking. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. So Isaiah 42 verse 1, that passage is what we often call a servant song, a passage that extols the beauty of Christ as the suffering servant, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. Another one of the servant songs is Isaiah 49, another is Isaiah 53, one of our most beloved passages in Isaiah. So Jesus is the suffering servant That's what this line means. When when God the Father says, He is my chosen one, He's referring back to Isaiah 42 and other passages like it, saying He's the suffering servant. So praise Him. Give thanks for Him being willing to suffer as a lamb who is slaughtered to take away the sins of the world. He's the royal king. Bow to Him. He's the suffering servant. Praise Him. And then in verse 35, God the Father says, This is My Son, My Chosen One. Listen to Him. It sounds like God the Father is just putting like an exclamation point at the end of this, but He's actually quoting another passage. And this is Deuteronomy 18. Let me read this to you here. A passage that portrays uh, Moses saying, There's going to be a prophet like me who comes later on, who's going to speak God's Word even more clearly, even more forcefully. Going to reveal God to his people even more gloriously. And so in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, verse 15, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, from the nation of Israel. It is to him you shall listen. Okay, God the Father says, Listen to him. Here Moses says, You shall listen to him. Uh, Skipping down a few lines. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. This is God the Father saying, speaking this now. I will raise up a prophet like Moses from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, there is judgment for not listening to Jesus. And here God the Father is taking that same passage in Deuteronomy 18 and saying, here is the glorious prophet like Moses, the one we've been waiting for for thousands of years, listen to him. What does it mean to listen to Jesus? He has already said, blessed are those who not only hear the word of God, but do it. What it means to listen to God, to listen to Christ, is that everything he says, you seek to obey by his grace. None of us do that perfectly. Our hearts are bent Against the truth, uh, against God, we wake up and we are having to reset our hearts before God every single day because our sinful nature, the fact that we are sinners, is constantly battling inside of us. And so we listen to Christ, we seek to obey all of his words, we seek to honor him in that way because he is the fulfillment of all Old Testament expectations. He's the royal king, he's the suffering servant, and he's the perfect prophet. So why is this passage important for us? Why is it worthy of us spending 30 to 40 minutes on a Sunday morning in March of 2022 talking about the fact that Jesus was transfigured? This seems like a past event that doesn't really apply to us. It was great for Jesus to be reminded of his Glory! It was great for those disciples who were there to learn these things about Jesus and recognize that they should listen to Jesus, not just to Moses and Elijah. But how does this really help us? Well, again, going back to verse twenty-six, this passage is about Christ coming glory and coming in glory, and it's sort of like when you when you go back to say the nine-eleven memorial in New York City, or uh, any number of other memorials that are, are sobering for us to consider, you go back to those if, if you go back a second or a third or a fourth time, maybe even you 're going to to the uh, cemetery to see where a loved one is buried and you 're going back to to remember and and to um, to consider the good contributions of a loved one perhaps and here what we should do is keep going back to this image of Christ's glory and find hope in it and find glory in it and uh, find, um, find meaning in it, find expectation of how God is going to reveal his glory to us in the future. So maybe we could put it this way. We live, as, we live better as disciples today when we remember the glory of the coming eternal tomorrow. And I don't feel like I'm saying that exactly right but I think you probably get the sense. Like, we are motivated to follow Christ today when we recall that His glory is so bright and radiant and that all of heaven is bowing before Him and that we will one day be part of that throng of people. We recall that Jesus is coming back in glory, the same glory that those disciples saw on that day. We also hope in the final exodus recalling that deliverance from sin. We know that we've been forgiven of sin. Those of us who are Christians take great joy in knowing that God is not angry at us today. What a privilege that is. What a nightmare it would be to wake up every morning and think that I have to earn back God's pleasure or favor today. You'd feel like you could never win. But instead, we know that we have forgiveness of sins, and that one day we will have ultimate deliverance from sins. We won't even be tempted by sin anymore. We'll have, we'll see God's final victory over darkness and evil the way that there was victory over the darkness and evil in Egypt in the initial exodus. And I think we should ask ourselves, what is it that deadens the allure of sin, that makes us see sin for what it is? That, as one Puritan would say, helps us see the hook Behind the lure. You know, you put a fishing lure to try and attract a fish to come and bite onto a hook. What helps you see the hook clearly? The glory of Christ. Meditating on the glory of Christ regularly. What removes the sting of suffering? Like when you have a really bad day, for whatever reason, things inside your control or not, usually not what removes the sting of suffering i would say drink uh, drinking deeply from the well of christ's glory over and over again and it does both of those things it deadens the allure of sin and it takes the sting out of our suffering perhaps as you read a passage like this you say i wish i could hear god speak to me like those disciples got to hear 2nd Peter chapter 1 actually refers back to this moment the transfiguration and tells us that not only do we get to hear God speak in scripture it's even a, a clearer experience because you know when you have a, a personal experience you kind of forget elements of that that's why sometimes we look at pictures and say oh i forgot that that person was there that day or that the weather looked like that that day This various parts of the experience become cloudy and fuzzy and here in, in 2 Peter, Peter who was on this mount, he said, we saw Christ's glory that day, and we have a more sure word from God. So when we read God's scripture, we get to hear God speak. And maybe somebody would say, well, I want to hear God speak out loud. This isn't original with me, but I would just say, read your Bible out loud, and then you get to hear God speak out loud. So perhaps you would say, uh I wish I could see him in all his glory. And 1 John chapter 3 says that will happen. We will see him as he is on the last day. So a passage like this should inspire us to continue doing what is hard, what is difficult. To continue to follow Christ, seeing that it is worth it in the end that you will get to the end of that hard road and say, boy, that was difficult. It was hard to deny myself and take up my cross and follow him. But in the end, it was worth it because I see the glory that is at the end of the road. I see the glory of Christ himself. And this passage is holding out that glory for you and saying, this is the Jesus you follow. So follow hard after him all your days. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for telling us why Jesus came and telling us who Jesus is. We know many, many people in our society and in the world at large are unclear or are even deceived about who Jesus is and why he came. And so we pray that you would make us, as your followers, people who are committed to following you all the way, And people who are committed to telling others that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, the only way to you as our Father. We know that there is salvation in no one else. And so we pray that you would give us great urgency in sharing the message of the gospel and of declaring that this Jesus is your glorious Son. And we long for the day when we're with him. We pray that in the meantime, his glory would indeed deaden the allure of sin and help us to uh, endure the hard days of suffering. We pray in Christ's name, amen.